This is a story, in a way, about retirement, about two different retirements in the life of David Poyer. The first of Captain David Poyer, United States Naval Reserve, one of the Naval Reserve's most impressive officers, as he was called at his retirement ceremony in 2001. And the other, on the part of the best-selling author, David Poyer, who is retiring Dan Lenson, the major character in 22 of Poyer's novels, known as the Dan Lenson series. In the recently released novel, The Academy, Lenson has been appointed superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. Rear Admiral Martin Jancic of the U.S. Naval Reserve had the pleasure of presiding at Dan Poyer's retirement, Captain Dan Poyer's retirement ceremony aboard the USS Wisconsin at Nauticus, Norfolk on June 9, 2001. He notes at the start that David Poyer graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis in 1971, and he goes on to explain that Dave, or DC as he's known to his academy classmates, grew up far from the sea in the Allegheny Highlands of northwestern Pennsylvania. His father, a World War II veteran of the North Africa, Italian, French, and German campaigns, suffered from significant mental illness and was hospitalized when David was a boy. So Dave grew up on welfare. He realized early that in order to amount to anything, he'd have to leave those Pennsylvania hills and strike out for the world beyond. Dave joined the Navy on another bright June day back in 1967. He saw salt water for the first time as he was walking downhill from the bus station at Annapolis to the U.S. Naval Academy. It was the glittering surface of the Chesapeake he didn't shine during plebe year, though. In fact, he barely squeaked through. But I suspect it was his own experiences there that gave him the wherewithal to write his 1983 comic novel, The Return of Philo T. McGiffin, an underground legend and cult favorite that the Naval Academy bookstore still numbers among its most popular offerings today. Admiral Jancic includes details about many of Poyer's assignments. For example, he says David deployed to the Med, Mediterranean, twice and took part in a gruesome winter cruise north of Iceland during which his ship was ordered to find the worst storm out there and stay in it as long as she could to test a new variable depth sonar rig. This sounds to me very much like the harrowing Arctic voyage of the fictional USS Reynolds Ryan. Dave recounts in his book, The Circle, which I understand is required reading in the literature of the sea course at Annapolis. And that was all still early in Poyer's naval career. Rear Admiral Jancic says, such is an outline of Dave Poyer's career. Yet even as I give it, I'm conscious how much I've left out. I know he was a submarine engineer with the Newport News Shipbuilding, working on Tomahawk and Seawolf submarine. I know he's a family man. I've met his lovely and accomplished wife, Lenore, who is also a novelist, and their daughter, Naya, who I fully anticipate will carry on the family tradition of brilliance. 
I know he's taught or lectured at Annapolis, Flagler College, the University of Pittsburgh, the Joint Staff College, Old Dominion University, the University of North Florida, and other institutions. Dave is not your typical outstanding naval officer. As the language of our current fitness report system has it, he's something different, something more reminiscent of criteria from two fitness report systems ago. Criteria I have always admired and regretted were removed. The mark was for the courage to do what's right, regardless of the consequences to oneself. I've always thought that apropos for operational naval officers, and I can tell you that David Poyer epitomizes what it means. Dave has never backed away from saying or writing what he believed because it was unpopular or because it might endanger his career. His books and articles and addresses have subjected many of the most sacred cows of the military establishment to a searching and yet not often unsympathetic criticism aimed at reinventing our military institutions for a new and less blinkered era. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. I can think of no better encapsulation of Dave's creed than the words he used, I notice, as the epigraph to one of his books. They're ancient words from the Upanishad, the ancient Sanskrit text of the Vedas. Awake from this fever of ignorance, put aside this illusion of self, put all your trust in me, then go forward and fight. He took up the naval profession with integrity and sincerity, and even in a subdued and almost unnoticeable way, with a measure of joy. In its service, he has earned what he left the hills of Pennsylvania to seek, personal excellence and the respect of others. He also discovered a world, a world he could reconstruct through his fiction into a parable of meaning. He has fought the good fight, not always with victory, but always with honor. I will miss him among us. Words of Rear Admiral Martin Jancic, USNR, in his remarks at the 2001 retirement ceremony of Captain David C. Poyer, U.S. Naval Reserve, who was even then a successful writer. And so, writer David Poyer returns to the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, where he began his own career in the military service and he places his main character, Dan Lenson, at the helm of the Academy, which gives Poyer a chance to reflect on major changes in the country and the military over the intervening years, and to tell another rip-roaring story as Dan Lenson sails off into the figurative sunset. David Poyer has spent a number of years on the faculty of the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes University here in Wilkes-Barre and from which he has, yes, recently retired. Over his time there, we've had a number of chances to talk with him about Dan Lenson and his stories along the way, and it is certainly fitting that Poyer stopped in to talk with us about the Academy, the very last in that series. We began by reviewing some of the earlier novels. I did the five books of The War with China. That started with, it started with Tipping Point, and then went through Onslaught, which was the opening of the war, and then Hunter Killer, which was the interception of submarines in the Pacific, and then Overthrow, which was the end of the war, uh, which ended with a nuclear exchange that decimated both countries. 
and then Violent Peace, which dealt with the aftermath of the war, and then Arctic Sea, which which I wanted to do because the Arctic is opening up as a new arena of great power competition. And uh, the next book is The Academy, and Dan has always wanted his Twilight Tour to be superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy. So he's going to regain his old rank of vice admiral and take over Annapolis uh, in the face of several challenges. Uh, The academy is headed for several icebergs, and he's going to have to change course very rapidly and in the face of significant opposition. So that's uh, that also is a Macmillan book, and I think that will be the capstone to Dan Lanson's career after 22 books. We have talked along the way with you, David, about your own experience in the Navy and how you were able to use that experience to make the stories that much more real for the reader because you had the smell, the taste, the sounds of the Navy in your own perceptual experience and bring that to bear. You haven't been in the Navy for quite some time, though, Mm -hmm. and the technology and so forth has developed since those early books. Mm -hmm. How do you continue to use your imagination to take us below the sea how do you know what that's like inside? Well, in terms of submarines, I, I worked in submarine design at Newport News Shipbuilding, so submarines are no no mystery to me, although for most of my career I was a surface line officer. Uh, but to, to keep up to date since my retirement, it's a combination of research, interviews, travel. Almost everything that I needed to know was, well, I would say everything I needed to know was open source material. Uh, there's a lot of professional journals and technical journals, and you infuse some imagination with that, and you use continuing characters, and you have a story. We talked when we were here at the table, and you had anticipated some of the ways that the foreign affairs with China were playing out in the real world. You had anticipated some of them in your novel, and you had some interesting things to say about how that is and what that means for you as a writer and the reader who looks at the story and follows along and says, didn't I just see a report on that? You have a knack, don't you? Well, I, you know, I've done deep reading in history, and if you understand the, uh, the concept of great power competition and you know history and how empires break up and are reformed, you can look at, for example, the current conflict of Russia and Ukraine is a, uh, a typical example of a colonial power trying to regain control over its departing satellite. Uh, same with France and Algeria, Great Britain and the United States, and, uh, and the Dutch and Indonesia, and the French again and into China. Colonial powers tend to try to hold on to their former clients, as it were, and that's what Putin is trying to do in Ukraine. But Ukraine is departing. Uh, Ukraine will never be part of the Soviet Union again. It will never be part of some great imperial Russian project. It's just gone uh, and and migrating toward the West. What do we learn from reading Tolstoy and War and Peace and Dostoevsky about that general worldview of Mother Russia? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Dostoevsky... Hated Poles, and he was contemptuous of Ukrainians and several other minorities as well. But uh, yeah, he had the typical great Russian 
he had a wonderful, wonderful view into people's souls. But as far as uh, Russia and nationalism, he was uh, he was an orthodox, great Russian patriot, I guess you would call him. As far as the others, yeah, you, you can see a continual denigration of, uh, of the minorities to the West, the Poles and the Ukrainians, the Lithuanians, the Latvians. They were, they were lesser beings without the law, without, without the Orthodox faith, I should say. Who are the players in Arctic Sea in terms of the great powers and who's up there and NATO involved and those things? Yeah, uh, the antagonist, if you will, uh, is Russia, uh, which is continually encroaching uh, farther and farther north. Uh, they're claiming all the way up to the North Pole on the basis of the the depths of the seabed and the extension of the continental shelf. And certainly those areas are very rich in natural resources, uh, not just oil, but also metals and minerals. So they're attempting to move north like that, and they're also testing um, autonomous torpedo that can wipe out any coastal city in Europe or the United States. And the mission of Dan and Sloan Tomlin, Sloan is uh, a younger officer who is sort of following in Dan's footsteps in a way, although he's a very different character, motivated differently. But his mission is to disrupt the Russian test of this new torpedo. Uh, so the way they're going to do that is to insert themselves in, uh, in an autonomous submarine, the Orca here, which is just an extension of uh, a current Navy developmental program, an extension of that by a few years, and divert the torpedo and make it look like the failure, the test is a failure. So that's kind of the setup for it. Didn't we talk about the fact that you have a lot of readers who are in the services, don't you? And that people really respect the way you tell a good story, and it happens to be <laughs> in that context. Well, I, I definitely get a lot of letters from current and former sailors. Uh, I mean, sometimes they nitpick this or that, but in general, they're very supportive, yes. And how about the fan base for Dan himself? People keep saying, what's next, David? <laughs> They're really hooked. Well, the difficulty is that as he advances in seniority, a uh, vice admiral doesn't really do anything very exciting, you know, especially if it's not wartime. And even if it is wartime, they don't do anything really exciting themselves. So you, your character gradually gets promoted out of doing anything interesting. So I've struggled with that for a while. And you know, one of the ways I dealt with it was uh, by introducing Tomlin, who's a younger officer, and by having Dan's wife become Secretary of Defense. So she's trying to deal with all the political fallout and ramifications. And his daughter, who is a bacteriologist and is fighting um, epidemics of typhus and typhoid and other things in the Midwest after the nuclear attacks have, you know, destroyed a great deal of the United States. Um, you know, there's famine, there's uh, pestilence, there's uh, civil strife. So she's involved in all that, yes. Now, was the part about the pestilence written before COVID or during COVID? Or? Yeah, unfortunately, I got myself in a little jam there because just as I was finished writing about the Chinese flu, we had COVID, which some people started calling the Chinese flu. And so I was kind of stuck with it, and uh, I had to sort of carry through as best I could. David, you tell us the Academy 
is the final book in the Dan Lenson series. It is number 22, as we know. You just told us about the role of a vice admiral, and it's interesting that you use in describing the challenges that Dan has in taking over at the Naval Academy that he has got to navigate some icebergs. That sounds like the Titanic. Well, you know, you don't really have a novel unless there are big problems ahead for the protagonist. The classic uh, description of how you build a novel from the beginning is you you, you challenge your protagonist in, in various ways. Uh, the struggle with uh, the elements, the struggle with the human antagonist, the struggle with God, the struggle with all kinds of different things. And um, not least among them is the struggle with oneself, the elements in oneself that need to be purged and need to be met and need to be need to be refined or eliminated uh, because there's a wonderful, wonderful quote by Solzhenitsyn that I love to use. And he says something like, the line between good and evil runs not between countries nor between classes nor even between religions, but right through the middle of every human heart. Isn't that a great quote? So so that's, that's the primary struggle, I think, that Dan Lenson has. You know, he struggles with external antagonists. He struggles with Russia and China and the Pentagon and, you know, and various elements in the Navy and uh, outside the Navy, but also, you know, with himself. He's trying to overcome things in his own personality. And I think over the course of 22 books, we see him doing that. We see that growth, that personal growth, and that that refinement that I think— uh, you know, should lead over the course of a life to something resembling wisdom. So when he when he takes over at the academy, he's told that the position of superintendent, Superintendent Cree, who's the outgoing soup, says uh, something like, uh, this is really a ceremonial position, and you really don't have to do much. And, uh, you know, you've got your department heads, and they do things for you, and all you do is have teas and welcome the parents and you know, and smooth the feathers, the alumni, and and Dan's looking around, and he's doing his homework and interviewing the department heads and talking to people at the Pentagon and talking to people at J3 and the SecNav's office, and he's thinking, uh, this, you know, I'm not getting the straight story here. There are, there are serious problems that need to be addressed, and, you know, some of those problems are the ones that we see covered in the newspapers about all the military academies, not just Annapolis, uh, the Coast Guard Academy, the Air Force, the uh, the West Point Merchant Marine Academy. These are all these are all faced with you know declining demographics, uh, the problem of appealing to youth, the problem of political divisiveness that is affecting the academies as well, questions of funding, uh, a big problem that Annapolis has that the other military academies don't have is rising sea level. Uh, A big problem with Annapolis because it's kind of facing a triple whammy. For one thing, most of the naval academy is built on fill. That is all filled land that that most of the buildings are are based on. Uh, It was silt and muck that was pumped out of the bottom of Annapolis Harbor and has settled over the years, and it's still settling, and that means that the land is sinking and as you may know, the whole Chesapeake Bay watershed is also sinking. And number three, the sea is rising because of climate change. 
So you've got a triple whammy there, and it's going to be a serious problem from the academy in the near future. Um, They're already experiencing serious flooding, repeated flooding, and that's one of the big things that he's going to be struggling with and I hope addresses by the end of the book. And then there are the, you know, the usual questions about women and minorities, and uh, he's got to struggle with all that. Who, who gets admitted? To whom do we give preference? Uh, should we not give preference to certain minorities? That's being fought out in Congress right now. So these are all live issues that I'm going to be dealing with, and he's going to have to navigate it, and uh, it's not going to be easy because there are no right answers. By the time by the time a question or a problem gets up to the level of a vice admiral, it's not an easy question to answer. You know, they really only get the sticklers. Any any problem that's easy that has an easy answer is solved way below them. So is the 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 outgoing the outgoing superintendent of the academy who I interviewed said to me, uh, my motto is I should only do those things that only I can do. I should only do those things that only I could do. And I thought, wow, that's a brilliant insight into leadership, isn't it? Because uh, the things that your you know, that your juniors can do, they should do. And you should not interfere. You should not micromanage. But when it comes to uh, when the question is something you have to decide, then you'd better decide it right because it's a big question, and it's going to have major earthquake ramifications if you screw up. <laughs> People always ask this question, have you thought, has any in this series been options? It sounds like they could all make really compelling movies. And this one with the character and especially mm-hmm. the topical ones, even though we're not under the Arctic in Orca. Mm-hmm. Well, Erica, from your mouth to God's ear. Would you want them to extend the stories that way? Well, we had uh, we had... Final, the Return of Philo T. McGiffin, which was my first novel about the Academy, it was a comic novel. Uh, it's still in print with the Naval Institute Press, but it was optioned. No, actually, it was bought by Universal Pictures. And they were up to the screenplay stage when John Badham and Universal had a falling out. You know, so it got derailed. But I was frankly relieved. For one, for one thing, I got the fat check. So I was happy with that. And on the other hand, I didn't have to apologize for the movie. So <laughs> I would always be stuck apologizing for the movies if they made them. So it's a question of, you know, maybe it would be possible, but really I'm a novelist. Uh, and secondarily, a teacher, and tertiarily, a playwright. I started out just to amuse myself, but then one of my plays got picked up and produced in Zurich in the, uh, in the Zurich English-speaking theater, and now I'm an internationally produced playwright, and I thought, gee, this is this is different. You know, let's try this. So I've written a couple new plays, and we'll see where those go. You're using all that you've experienced up to this point. You've always been writing dialogue in, your, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. your novels and so forth. But what is it that's different? Well, what's different about writing plays is uh, I don't have to work as hard. Because all I have to do is the dialogue and just a few simple stage directions. And I don't have to do all this description it's a lot easier because I can leave a lot of things to the actors and a director. So, I I mean, real playwrights will laugh at me for saying this, but uh, it feels easier to me. And I'm sure as I write more and more plays, if I do, that I'll soon discover how naive my attitude was.
David Poyer, decorated Navy veteran and best-selling author, speaking with us in connection with the release of his novel, The Academy, published recently by St. Martin Macmillan, and it's the 22nd and final book in the long-running and nationally praised Dan Lenson series. For more information on the web, poyer.com, poyer.com, P-O-Y-E-R, dot com. Dot com.